0: Hey everybody, this is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards with another episode of The Taste. As you know, this podcast is all about conversations with people who are involved in some way in the wine business. And today we've got one of the top people in the world of wine writing. A guy who's traveled the world, has seen it all, has written about it all, is a big, big wine enthusiast and educator. He's got a very cool background and I've been wanting to talk to him for a long time. So let's get going. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. Uh, We have had some wonderful guests, famous, successful winemakers, chefs, restaurateurs, professional athletes, all here on The Taste. Today is our first famous, accomplished novelist and part-time wine writer and full-time wine lover, Jay McInerney. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Doug. Uh... Good to hear your voice. It's been a while. It, it, it has been a while, and uh, again, I'm, so, I'm sorry we can't do this in person, so we'll have to find a time later to share a bottle of Soon. wine. Soon. Soon I'll be,
1: re- I'll be returning to Napa. Good. I, I, Good. I can't wait.
0: Well, speaking of returning to Napa, the first time you met, I was thinking about this last night. I think it was you and Laura Zarubin from House and Garden were in Napa That's doing deep. some research, and... We, and Annette joined us, my wife. We had dinner at Red in Yountville. Oh, that's and, and right. We drank, remember, and we drank a lot of wine. Right, that was a good we time. Drank,
1: <laughs> we drank a lot of wine, including, it seems to me, a 78. God,
0: uh, good Schaefer, memory. Uh, I wondered if you remembered that. Yeah. yeah that was yeah. the first. It was... Dad's first wine. We popped one of those. Yeah. It was,
1: yeah. And it was very good. It was uh, very special, obviously, given the, the history. But, uh, yes, I... I do remember that. That, that was, was a fun uh, That was something. That was back in my, my very first uh, wine writing incarnation, uh, <laughs> for House and Garden. I think it was nineteen ninety six when yeah. I started that column at the request of uh, then editor in chief Dominique Browning, who was a close friend of mine and knew that I was a wine nut, um, right. and that I liked to bore my friends talking about wine. And she thought maybe I could do it in print. Uh, <laughs> And she asked me to to do a column, which, which which initially I found very daunting because, you know, much as I loved wine, I, I you know I I had no formal education in wine appreciation, and I uh, you know I wasn't even sure what malolactic fermentation was at the time. <laughs> she said what she was looking for is passion and and somebody who could who could write, and uh, and I think you know some of the some of the skills. I had developed as a novelist were, were, were transferable, you know. In right. that I love, to, I love to write about the people who make wine. I decided that metaphors and similes, um, you know, comparing a wine to a, an actress or a car or a poem or a pop song, uh, could sometimes be just as effective as as literal taste descriptions. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not a huge fan of the, the piling on of flavor descriptors. So. Uh, <laughs> So yeah. anyway, I went for it, and I said oh, I'll do it for six months. And then years later, I was still I was still at it until the magazine folded in,
0: uh, I believe, two thousand seven. But I want to go back farther than that. I'm going to take you yep. way back. I want I want to because you know you and I have talked about wine many times through the years. But I don't. I want to know more about you. where did you grow up? Where were you born? Family? where did it start, man?
1: <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was. Um, the my, my father was a bit of a corporate gypsy. He worked for Scott Paper Company as a director of marketing, uh, hmm. which entailed um, moving between different uh, markets. I grew up. Uh, I think I, I think I attended fourteen different schools by the time I had oh. gotten to high school. Wow. I was born in Hartford, but it seems kind of irrelevant since I certainly don't remember that. Um, my family's from New England, and uh, we used to spend summers on Cape Cod, which was one of the few consistent uh, locations mm. in my life. And uh, we lived in Vancouver, Canada, in uh, Geneva, in London, and kind of all over the states while and, I was growing up. That's, and this and, is, uh, like, this
0: is before, before graduating from high school. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Gee, that uh, must have been crazy. What was that like? Yeah.
1: It was well it was it was kind of unsettling. I mean, on yeah. the one hand, I think on the one hand, I think <laughs> it made me probably in the short run very insecure and <laughs> uh, ne- neurotic, but I think in the longer run it made me uh, very comfortable with new situations <laughs> and uh, with meeting new people and um, I can't really wish for a a, a different background, but there are certainly certainly times when you know, cha- changing schools and being the new kid in school um, uh, is not something I would wish oh, on on real uh, yeah. <laughs> well, especially, you know,
0: multi- 14 times, you know. Yeah,
1: so I, was, I was
0: always the new kid. Always the new kid. So, yeah, so
1: I, 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 I developed survival skills. Yeah,
0: <laughs> well, you have to. So, quick question, with mm-hmm. you know, becoming a novelist and a writer... Did, was that happening when you were a kid?
1: You know, I, I, was, I was a big reader, um, mm-hmm. and I, I spent, you know, I probably spent an inordinate amount of time alone since uh, it inevitably took took a while to make friends, And mm-hmm. uh, but I loved reading, and the first things I remember reading were the Hardy Boy Mysteries. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, those. Yeah, I am. I know those uh, When I was, I moved to England when I was six years old, and I developed a big interest in English history. Later, we moved to Vancouver. I uh, became a big fan of the novels of Jack London. Okay. Um, set in the West and Alaska and the Yukon and so right. on. Um, somewhere along the line, I started writing stories. Okay. Uh, inevitably, they were imitations of whatever I was reading at the <laughs> time. But yeah, writing became a, an outlet and, and eventually a passion. When I was in high school, I discovered poetry um, initially through the work of Dylan Thomas who's mm-hmm. uh, the perfect poet for the, uh, the adolescent had sensibility right. he's so he's so purple and passionate and florid and his language really approaches the condition of, of music I think and uh, the the first thing I remember reading of his was a child's Christmas in Wales um, which is a wonderful piece of writing uh, I guess originally it was a radio play and and um, hmm. And I just decided then and there that I was going to be a writer. And I never really changed ambitions after that. For a number of years, I, was a, I, thought, I thought of myself as a poet, which made my father cry. that I <laughs> wanted <laughs> well, to yeah, be a but, poet. <laughs> well, Jay,
0: I would argue that all writers are poets. I think all writers aspire to be poets. So, do you but, still um, do you have any original I, poetry? That's what I want to know. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: I do have, do have a lot of poetry. I'm not sure that I would want to expose too much of it to the world. I do remember that my first poem, um, which I wrote when I was five or six and living in England was, uh, as I said, I had an interest in English history. And the first few lines went, Old King John was a dreamy lad he went swimming in the sea he got bitten by a crab um,
0: <laughs> at 6 and, years um, old i love yeah that.
1: and it, and it, and the poem went on to uh sadly they could not remove the crab <laughs> from the king and so they had to bury them both there on the beach um i don't know where that idea came from but that was my first uh, poetic production and uh, i think they they got better from there but uh, Maybe not so good that I decided to become a professional poet. I did publish a few poems when I was in college and grad Great. school, but nice. uh, happily for my readership and my bank balance, I eventually decided to write fiction instead. Right. right. Well, <laughs> uh, how- <laughs> somewhat more popular medium. It's a sort of a ridiculous ambition, really, and uh, uh, it's an unlikely. Vocation—at least, unlikely—in the sense that not that many people really succeed in supporting themselves as writers of fiction, let alone poetry. But, but fortunately, um, when you're young, you're bold and ignorant. So I boldly set forth on this path, and 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 improbably was eventually successful at it.
0: <laughs> oh, it's great. You have been very, very so. Switching back to wine, and was wine in the household growing up? You know, wine was a little bit in the
1: household, okay. uh, but I remember Corbel for special occasions. My parents would break out the Corbel sparkling wine, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> we would have we would have you know the occasional bottle of Paul Masson would uh, appear on the table. But my parents were my parents were really the cocktail generation, you know. Um, the whiskey sours and old fashions, and there was a brief period where they were drinking stingers, which was pretty disastrous. I my, I oh, my mom my par- used to. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my folks. My used parents. To do that. My my parents' friends. They they had this stinger period, and they they were all just like trash. <laughs> 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 <No, no. laughs> they were staggering around our house doing terrible things, <laughs> um, ending up in uh, ending up in bedrooms with the wrong <laughs> with the wrong person, <laughs> with the wrong person. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, well, wine wasn't very much a part of my upbringing, and I think that's I think that's one of the reasons that I was was attracted to it because, you know, I first really became aware of wine. Um, wine and literature were, were somewhat intertwined for me because, you know, for instance, Hemingway was one of my first um, literary enthusiasms, and there's certainly a lot of wine drinking, particularly in his early novels, you know, in Spain and in France, and. Um, Another writer that I liked quite a bit was Evelyn Waugh. A lot of wine in novels like Brideshead Revisited. Right. Waugh, Waugh was a, quite a wine connoisseur and a wine snob. And um, so for me, wine became associated with, not only with literature, but with, you know, a sophisticated taste, with a life which was far more glamorous to me than my suburban life. Right. Uh, you know, as, as much as we moved around the world, we we always ended up in, you know, one suburb or another, and they're all pretty interchangeable. And, you know, I couldn't wait to sort of get away from suburban life, from the, the middle class uh, uh, conventions of my upbringing. So, mm-hmm. so wine was very much an aspiration for me. And uh, interesting. Yeah. Well, so I think uh, when I went off to college. Um, it was uh, during that happy period when the drinking age was 18 instead of 21 so <laughs> i do remember so, that one too yeah <laughs> so i um you know so i was able to explore you know on my limited budget of course I was able to explore the world of wine somewhat i do remember that my wine of choice for dates when i went to uh, williams college was uh, chateauneuf to pop which you know is a, it's a crowd pleaser it's and a crowd I, yeah, I mean, I was, I remember I was an East Coast guy, uh, really, and so, sure. I don't know, the wines that we tended to first become familiar with were the, were European, uh, you know, Chianti and uh, Chateauneuf, Chateauneuf, and right. uh, so I, I was, uh, you know, happily drinking wine in, you were well, a wine in, guy. in college, okay. without, you know, with, with enthusiasm,
0: without much, uh, without much sophistication. Okay, um, but I'm with you, so... That's where you and I di- diverge, because so what yeah. I was doing research on you, you and I have some parallels that you don't know about. So, first <laughs> of all, we were born the same year, which we aren't going to mention. No, i um, won't mention that. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Suburban, and my parents, you know, maybe there was a bottle of lanterns, yeah. but it was, it was the cocktail, like you said, and they ended up with Stingers. Yeah, and these guys would go till 2 or 3 in the morning. Crazy. So, I've got a similarity <laughs> there. Um <laughs> growing up in michigan it was boone's farm in the summer on the beaches and if i wanted to impress some gal because i read you did you had the same move ah yes which which lancers what, no no <laughs> matuse with the bottom oh uh, matuse yeah yeah Matus, yeah that, yeah, Matus. that, that used yeah, to work ma-
1: <laughs> no, the, yeah, those, those, yeah, actually, um, I, I should mention Matus and Lancers were, were were two great uh, date It was the date, was the date wine, you know? yeah, same,
0: same age. Everybody liked them,
1: you know, and the bottles were really cool. And sure. Yes, my my very first date ever was a bottle of, uh, I guess, Matus, uh... At a restaurant in lennox massachusetts and i thought i was so sophisticated and (laughs) so cool i knew exactly what to order or so i thought you know it was probably about four or five bucks a bottle then at the restaurant sure Uh, (laughs) so but uh but you know it's like it's wine appreciation is you know is situational and mm -hmm. there's there is a sense in which that was one of the best wines I ever had in my life, because at that moment at that occasion with that girl, you know, um, that was just the perfect wine to drink. You know, I've certainly I've had more, more, more expensive and complex bottles since, but.
0: Sure. but it's true. It's, you know, the enjoyment of wine and your, you know, people always say, what's your favorite wine? It's like it's it has more to do with situation, like you said. Yeah. Than the actual yeah. wine itself. Because it's that memory, whatever was going on.
1: Yeah, the other one I remember at concerts is almondine. We would, uh, we, we would get the, we get these big jugs of almondine. Uh, oh. But oh, that, you know, it we, was a little bit they, sweet. They, get they, a headache. Yeah, no. very sweet. I know, but yeah, it, it seemed to go really well with the sort of cheap pot that we were smoking right. at, the, at, the, at the time. <laughs> Oh we yeah! Have was, a lot.
0: Oh, we have a lot in it, common. Oh my goodness! It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad, but <laughs> but it but it got the job done. <laughs> I love it. All right. So here here's one more parallel. Um, yeah. we both took road trips. You did it after college. I did it. Yep, I yep. I taught school for a couple of years, and after my first year of teaching, I did a big road trip for you know two or three months but uh, it was about the same time. So, tell me about that. You, t- you, you took a big road trip after school.
1: Well, after, yeah, I graduated from Williams and I wasn't quite sure what the hell I wanted to do with myself. And my parents had given me a 1966 Volkswagen Beetle for my <laughs> for my graduation. Nice. Uh, yeah, it was already more than a decade old by that time. <laughs> uh, but, it, but, hey, it was... It was transportation. <laughs> so um, a friend of mine and I, a classmate, jumped in the Volkswagen and decided to do a Kerouac, basically and drive across country and huh. see you know see what we could see and who we could meet and uh, we probably were on the road for about three months. You know? And right. eventually we eventually the eventual goal was San Francisco where. Uh, we decided we would try to get newspaper jobs. Uh, this was this was right in the sort of middle of the Watergate, or right afterwards. And and unfortunately, Woodward and Bernstein had made journalism the most you know, popular profession, sure, right. probably in the country. Even though you know there were aren't there are never that many jobs in journalism anyway. But but that was our eventual goal. But in the meantime, we visited every place we could. We had ever wanted to see. We went to, we went to Nashville, you know, looking for Willie Nelson, and <laughs> uh, we, we went to, um, you know, Oxford, Mississippi, to visit Faulkner's house, and we went oh, yeah. to New Orleans, and um, we kind of zigzagged around the country. From, yep. I would say for almost three months, some sometimes sleeping in the car. Uh-huh. Um, when we got to. When we got to Las Vegas, we were pretty much out of money, but we <laughs> stayed. You know, we sat down at the blackjack tables for eight or eight or nine, eight or nine hours and made made about a thousand bucks, and we keep were going. able to keep. keep that kept going. that kept us going for another few weeks. It was a great adventure, but eventually we we got to San Francisco and nobody nobody wanted nobody wanted to hire us as reporters or <laughs> or, or or much of anything else. You know. Uh, ironically, my future wife's family owned one of the papers. <laughs> the How funny. San Francisco Chronicle, but I didn't know that at the time. So eventually, I drifted back to the East Coast, and I did find a, a job at a weekly newspaper in New Jersey. Um, not, very, not very glamorous, but it was a start.
0: Right, and then, and then uh, very quickly after that, I think you ended up in Japan, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I very quickly got tired of uh, writing about planning board meetings and dog shows and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sewer board meetings. so uh, I applied for a fellowship, Princeton fellowship, that sent me to Japan. It was a uh, it was just a graduate fellowship to study Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. And I at that point I was I was just at a at a loss really. Uh, right. It was I just wasn't sure what the hell. I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I, I couldn't quite. Figure out how to support myself while i while i tr- tried to uh, to do this. And so a classmate at Williams had told me that it was really easy to uh, make a lot of money in Japan teaching English a few hours a week. And, huh. uh, and i was I was intrigued by the culture. you know, I mean people like you know writers like Alan Watts and Gary Snyder were very much in the air at that time. People writing about Zen Buddhism and Japanese culture. And I was intrigued. Um, So off I went to Japan. I ended up staying there for two years. I completed the Princeton program. I stayed on for another year and taught English and tried to write the great American expatriate novel. I studied karate. I studied the language. (laughs) You know, it was wonderful until finally I realized that I was just sort of postponing the start of my real life, unless indeed I wanted to spend it in Japan. So I returned to New York, uh, or I or I went to New York, since okay. I never actually lived there before. But New York, uh, this was 1979, and I was hearing, I don't know, I was feeling these sort of cultural vibrations from New York, new wave music, you know, uh, CBGBs was happening. Um, and also, you know, it seemed like pretty much the literary center of the United States, it, you know, where New York was where the publishers were, where the, you know, the beat generation had pretty much been based there. Writers like Norman Mailer and Truman Capote and Dorothy right. Dahl had sort of started out there. It, um, it just seemed like the place to go. And in fact, I immediately fell in love with New York and as someone who'd never really had a hometown i thought hey this is it this is my place and i have never changed my mind about yeah. that and and new york became my subject as well you know i mean right you know raymond carver had the pacific northwest and william faulkner had you know mississippi and mm-hmm. uh, but and i had but i'd never really been anywhere i had never really lived anywhere long enough to particularly identify and Suddenly, I thought, hey, why not write about New York? It just seemed so exciting. Uh, I mean, it, it was a really interesting time to get there because <clears throat> on the one hand, it seemed like New York was completely falling apart. Yeah, I, almost, I remember it, it almost It was really edgy. Yeah, I remember that. Really edgy. The city had almost gone bankrupt two right. years before. Uh, and it was dirty and dangerous, and crime. Every, everybody, yeah, everybody got mugged. Right. and it was a her- heroin epidemic at the time. And, uh, <laughs>
0: and this was you your, your new home. <laughs> well, yeah, my Volkswagen.
1: I drove my I drove my Volkswagen to the city, and it was immediately stolen. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <my> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> but there was so much energy. Um, there was a there was a real cultural scene that was that coalesced around downtown. Basically, the Um, painting was almost being reinvented. You know, there was a, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, painting had been almost declared dead, um, you know, in favor of, you know, conceptual art and performance art and so on and so on. And suddenly these guys like, you know, Basquiat and uh, Keith Haring and Eric Fischel, guys that I was actually seeing on the street, you know, Julian Mm. Schnabel, they were reinventing painting. There was this whole, you know sort of punk new wave music scene that was going on at places like CBGB's and the Mud Club, you know. Right. You know, I was a little too late to catch the talking heads at CBGB's, but, mm. uh, you know, they had sort of moved on to bigger venues, but I did, I did see, I did see them at the Mud Club. Huh. Uh, I, I saw the Ramones, I saw the B-52s at these little you know, little, little, downtown venues. And it was sort of my idea that I wanted to create a kind of literary equivalent to the music and and art scenes that were flourishing in the midst of this downtown Manhattan squalor. <laughs> I mean, and it was it was squalor, but it was it was sort of touch and go for a while whether you know whether the, <laughs> New York was going to sink into the into the East River or whether it was gonna, there was going to be a renaissance. And of course, there, there did turn out to be a renaissance, right. certainly culturally and uh, economically. Uh, although, you know, we, we did have this terrible, you know, tragedy of, of, of the AIDS crisis, which developed a few years after I arrived in New York, which really kind of scythed through the artistic community. But it was, it was uh, to me, it was just an incredible time to be there, and um, and eventually, I wrote a book about the literary and the nightclub scene, the uh, downtown uh, music and art scene, called *Bright Lights, Big City*, and uh, published it uh, to increasing acclaim, and. Mm-hmm. At which point, I don't know. Within a within a year or two, there, were, there suddenly was indeed a kind of literary equivalent to to the music and, and art that I had been admiring as as a young man. It was well, a great you're time. Being, you're being, it was a great time to be young yeah, in New York. Yeah, <laughs> you're being
0: really modest. Uh, it's a fantastic novel and. Bright Lights, Big City. I think most everybody is very familiar with it, so um, you should take a bow. But um... it was basically this
1: autobiographical novel about the, <laughs> the life, I, the life that I'd been living for two or three years in in, in New York uh, when, I, when I was when uh, I was working as a fact checker at the New Yorker and uh, and going out to nightclubs at night. And, Crawling into the New Yorker office in the morning and doing a fairly bad job of being a fact checker, to the, to, to the point that I was eventually fired. Uh, I, I, you know, rightfully so. I, I think I, I think I, well, this this, make, this makes for great fiction. You know, I mean,
0: come on, is it truth or is it fiction? It's,
1: it's true. You know, Hemingway said that you know the worst thing that can happen to you as a writer, or the bad He said the best thing that can happen to you as a writer is. Is the worst thing that happens so long as it doesn't kill you. you (laughs) (laughs) In my case, I um, lost my job at the New Yorker. My mother died of cancer, and my wife left me uh, all in the space of about seven or eight months. Uh, So, um, so it was a real trifecta of (laughs) of heartbreak, which which ended up I don't know, making for an interesting. Mm And heartfelt novel, I think. In of the course. end, um, <laughs> yeah. I said at the time it didn't feel good.
0: No, and and <laughs> it did not feel. Uh, I it think It didn't so.
1: feel good at all. You know, my, um, I mean, the my, the the, the fact checking job was never one that was really dear to my heart. But on the other hand, it was the New Yorker, you know, and right. it, was, it was it was it was prestigious and it paid paid fairly well. And uh, it was it was very humiliating <laughs> to get fired. Uh, yeah and 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 to tell my mother who was sick with cancer that i'd been fired um, and uh at that time i was dating a woman who was a very successful uh, fashion model i'd actually met her in japan we went back to new york together hmm. and she had become a successful model uh and i, I you know my after a um, nine glorious months at the New Yorker I was, I was fired and uh, her career was going up and mine was going nowhere and I don't know I think I, I, think I thought it would do my mother's heart good if I got married uh, given her health problems and mm-hmm. um, it might have except that within three or four months of getting married my, my wife ran ran off with a, an Italian fashion photographer so no yeah, no. so that pl- that plan didn't work out very well. Oh
0: man! <laughs> yeah,
1: so it was. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, yes, these 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 are the circumstances from which my my, my novel Bright Lights Big City arose. <laughs> well, <laughs> after after losing my job and my wife in New York, right. basically, I felt like the city had beaten me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I've been there for two years or so, and I I just felt you know, like I'd been whipped out of town. And I, I, um, I applied to uh, some graduate school programs. but One in particular that I really wanted to attend was at Syracuse University because Raymond Carver was teaching there. And Carver was at that time probably the most influential writer in America and certainly one of my favorites. And I, and I had the good fortune of meeting him through my friend Gary Fiskejohn, my road trip buddy, who had had gone to work for Random House. Carver had come into New York for a reading at Columbia University, and uh, after lunch uh, at Random House, he had nothing to do before his reading, and my friend Gary called me up and said, Raymond Carver is coming to your apartment. Uh, we, (laughs) We want you to show him around the city. And I was, I thought it was a joke, and I just hung up. But sure enough, my buzzer rang a little bit later, and there was, this big, big, shambling bear of a man naming Carver. And we ended up hitting it off and sitting around the apartment talking about literature. And his friend Richard Ford came by, who was on the verge of becoming a very important writer himself. Now, we stayed in touch after that. And Carver invited me to come to Syracuse. And and, and I I applied, was accepted into the writing program. That was the start of my wine store phase. I. To supplement okay. my, my meager fellowship, I worked a store called the Westcott Cordial Shop, which, uh, in addition to selling uh, industrial <laughs> fortified grape juice to, to guys with bad hygiene, we also sold uh, a few real wines. Uh, there was, a, you know, there was, there was there was a few serious bottles on the shelf, and I I uh, and also the uh, the proprietor. Had a wine library in the store. He had all the you know the Hugh Johnson books and right. so on. Uh, so I would sit sometimes and read between uh, <laughs> waiting on these winos and occasionally uh, living through a stick up. But oh no, uh, really? Yeah, oh yeah, like, oh yeah, they yeah pull, like, They're yeah. pulling the gun on you. Pulling the gun. Yeah. Oh man. Oh. Yeah, it was. A, you know, it was. A, it was. A, it was actually a bad part of town. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I did. Yeah, it was a tradition among the clerks that we'd take a bottle home every night uh, oh. since we were paid minimum wage. And, you know, I started with, uh, I don't know, I started with what, Yugoslavian Cabernet. when there's right. st- uh, this, is, this is when there still was a Yugoslavia. <laughs> and, you know, I worked my way up to like Frechina, the, mm-hmm. um, the Spanish Cava. But, you know, I, I started to develop a bit of a palate starting yeah. at the bottom, starting at the bottom, working my way up and i was actually at the wine store when i got the phone call saying that bright lights big city had been accepted for publication
0: oh well and, okay good things are turning around <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <fine>. very <laughs> excited
1: and, yeah so i i actually bought brought home the nicest bottle in the store i figured i would pay for this one i remember it was a 1978 smith haute lafitte i think i was partly attracted to the label it had uh, this same sort of blue, blue and yellow label that that it does today, but I again, that was one of the greatest bottles I ever had in my life. Simply, right. yeah, perhaps because of the circumstances, the fact that my That's very true. first novel had been accepted for publication by Random House. It was, you know, great a great day for me, and yeah. <laughs> and I. It seemed a great bottle of wine. Well, <laughs> at of course the time. it was, and you know, a yeah. sudden, that, uh, yeah. life's
0: turning around. Every, yeah, everything.
1: Yeah. It's life was turning around, and yeah. uh, I was also at the Westcott Cordial Shop working at the cash register when I, when I got another call from, um, uh, from Paramount, from someone at Paramount Studios, telling me that he had just read my novel and they would like me to fly west and talk about making it into a movie. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was. Uh, that's
0: pretty cool yeah there, so there was there was a pretty big turnaround <laughs> so that, that that cordial shop was okay <laughs> it was
1: it was all right and so i flew the the within days of getting this phone call i flew to la and i i stayed at a place called the chateau marmont it was recommended to me they said uh, you ought to stay at the chateau marmont and i said is that good and they said is it good well, John Belushi died there. Um,
0: <laughs> oh no! And, and, and so I think no. I think
1: I think, given some of the, uh, you know, substance abuse in, in in the novel *Bright Lights, Big City*, I think they somehow felt this would be the perfect place for me. Mm-hmm. But but <laughs> one reason it was a great place for me is because they had a very limited room service menu. It was uh, tuna melts and uh, you know, uh, say, you know, uh, Reuben sandwich. But Somehow they had this big cellar of, <laughs> particularly of old Burgundies. There was oh. like, a, a, there was a ton of old Bouchard, Burgundies from oh. this from the seventies. So I worked my way through that. You know, I would just order a bottle every night. You know, like, you know, seventy-eight Corton Charlemagne oh. or Mont- Montrachet or uh, it was. With but a talent. with a Reuben. It's, well, perfect. Yeah, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, and, and they and yeah, and didn't cost that much, and the studio was paying, so I didn't care. <laughs> right. But that was another little chapter of my wine life. I kept going back to the Chateau for a number of years, and uh, eventually, of course, the the stock of Burgundy was thoroughly depleted. Uh, and I, <laughs> I certainly had a lot to do with that.
0: <laughs> so at this point, Zoe, so you're definitely... You're definitely got the wine thing going. So, are you are you starting to collect wine? And-
1: uh, yes. Well, what, so Bright Lights was published in 1980, fall of 1984. I got seventy five hundred dollars for the for the book, uh-huh. um, which was which was pretty good. You know, it was, yeah. it was about it was a little bit more than the average advance, which of five thousand dollars. I mean, mostly that went to pay off <laughs> debts and so right. on. But 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 within a few weeks. The book really started to gain momentum and and the first printing sold out and a huge second printing was ordered and suddenly um, I went from poverty to relative <laughs> yeah. prosperity uh, at the exact moment that the nineteen eighty two Bordeaux were hitting the american <laughs> market <laughs> so a fair fair percentage of my Earnings <laughs> went into buying 82 Bordeaux. Uh, you know that was that was the world shaking right v- vintage. The you know the vintage that made Robert Parker. But uh, for me, these wines were even on release. They were fairly drinkable and opulent and delicious. And mm-hmm. I mean, believe it or not, I still have. I probably still have one or two of the huh. bottle of the bottles that I bought then, because of course you know. Uh, Bordeaux can last almost forever and uh, and you know I think the 82 vintage proved I think Robert Parker was certainly right about that one yeah that was when I started to go a little nuts (laughs) 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 obviously for for a while um, I was uh, Francophile right uh, Bordeaux Bordeaux was my thing I, I didn't know that much about Burgundy despite my depletion of the Chateau Marmont cellar and uh it was almost—it was almost a decade later, really—that I discovered what was happening in California, specifically in Napa and Sonoma, um, when my friend Dominique Browning called me to offer me this uh, wine writing job.
0: Yeah, that was at House and at Garden, House and right? Garden. Yeah,
1: you know, but that was—that yeah.
0: was—that didn't that surprise a lot of people? You know, all of a sudden, yeah, you know, I'm just like, "McNerney's going to write about wine." Everybody, everybody thought.
1: <laughs> everybody thought she was. Crazy, And not least her, her. she had already hired a food editor named Laura Zerubin. Right, uh, good. Uh, the, the the woman. Your great friend, met, yeah, dinner. still my great, still my great friend. Uh, saw her the other night, and uh, but she was very suspicious, and she said, <laughs> you know, she she ba- she basically said, what does Jay McInerney know about wine? you know his his you know his oh. sinus, you know his nasal passages are probably destroyed from cocaine and, <laughs> um, and so we had dinner in you know, so then we were supposed to have lunch at the four seasons uh, so she could check me out check you out. yeah unfortunately I arrived at lunch at the four seasons really hung over I'd been i been I'd been out with Brad Easton Ellis the night before so I I don't think I made that good an impression except that I blind tasted something that she she ordered um and she was somewhat impressed. But her caveat was, if I was going to be the wine columnist for House and Garden, I had to go to California and I had to visit Napa and meet the, you know, the people who were, uh, in her mind, most important, and the people who were really changing uh, the whole scene there, including, for instance, Helen Turley. This was the, this was 1996, and Helen, uh, Turley, and John, Well, off her head. Mm-hmm. they had just bought their, uh, their vineyard on the Sonoma Coast, uh, I think the year before. Okay. I went and met Helen, my very first wine, uh, professional wine tasting experiences, um, meeting Helen at the Napa Wine Company, the crush, yeah. custom crush right. facility. She had this tiny little cubicle there where she was making uh, her own Marcusen label from from purchased grapes, uh, uh, and also Bryant and Colgan. So I tasted all of these wines. Um, my uh, ten in the morning. You know, you know if, 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 At, at yeah. that time, I thought it was quite extraordinary to taste wine at ten in the morning. Of course, now I know that that's when that's the palate we... is freshest, and that's what we do. You know. Yeah. But you know she was pretty skeptical too because she she knew exactly who I was and she just thought you know what the hell is this guy doing
0: here, <laughs> yeah.
1: um, and so she said um, she she quizzed me before we tasted and she oh, she wow. said uh, do you you know what do you know about California Chardonnay and I said well not that much I said I, I, there's a there's a few I like and and then I said she said like what and I said uh, well I really like this one called Peter Michael. I, I had no idea, but of course until like the year before she had she had been the winemaker She'd been making it, yeah making making the Peter Michael Chardonnays, <laughs> and uh, so she brightened up considerably after that and uh, <laughs> and we we ended up you know forming a friendship I you know I, on that trip I also I met her her brother Larry who of course is be, be, behind the Turley Zinfandel so it, mm-hmm which which she was she was making at the time yes. that didn't last, that didn't last much longer but i met uh, Barton daphne Arajo. Um, mm-hmm. it was eye opening for me because you know that that was you know that was a turning point i think in in napa 95 96 97 when people like helen were you know kind of changing the predominant style mm-hmm. of of the wines there and it was it was a very exciting time you know it was either that trip or the next one that I met Bill Harlan and you know I I found these new I found these new wines to be very exciting there's been several chapters of Napa wine history since but uh, but 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 one of the things I loved was the fact that they were figuring out how to make Cabernet Sauvignon after after years of of you know big tannic uh wines mm-hmm. they were learning how to tame the tannins of of cabernet so that you right. know it was it was drinkable and approachable at a much earlier age and 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 also you know discovering zinfandel i mean you know it's 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 a wonderful exuberant all-american taste sensation really and uh, I just uh, I just really enjoyed uh, arriving at that moment, and I subsequently became a regular visitor to Napa and and eventually to Sonoma as
0: well, and uh, met you somewhere
1: somewhere Somewhere, along that time. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Now the '90s were super exciting. There was a lot going on both in the vineyard and the cellar, and I you know I was right at the thick of it. So it was like uh, you know there's new new ideas. Every other week, just new things yeah. to try and play with, and that was really fun. So your timing was good. But yeah. you, t- you touched on something earlier. I want to ask you again about. Mm-hmm. So you're coming in as a wine, you know, to be a wine writer. I mean, And you know, knowing you and and as I have through the years, but like I'm sure you took a good, you know, look at it and thought about. It. Did you have a, an idea of what you wanted to do um, as far as, you know, what was, what was your stamp going to be? I think, I
1: think that uh, at the risk of, of sounding uh, arrogant, uh, I knew that I was a better writer than most of the people writing about wine at that time, you know. It just seemed like in terms of, <laughs> in terms of uh, incandescent prose, the bar was pretty low. In, in the wine writing community. <laughs> and I, but I also felt that you know, that I would try to just bring some novelistic uh, skills to the to the table. you know as I said, you know, I, I'm pretty good at creating metaphors and similes and And also I thought that you know, I wanted to write about the people. I wanted the winemakers to be characters in my essays and and really, It was so interesting, particularly at that time in Napa, when everybody, like your father, for instance, (laughs) everybody there had come from someplace else and some other profession, really, at which they had been successful. And then they'd gone to California to make wine. So, you know, there's so many great stories there about transitioning to... to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody, like me, had their sort of, their story about the wine epiphany and the thing that finally made them decide to commit to this, to this path. So, you know, I knew, I knew I was a pretty good storyteller and that I could, uh, and, and I knew that there were so many interesting characters, really, in, in, in the world of wine. You know, the, you know, the archetypal European wine story is usually quite different. It's usually somebody who's inherited this tradition and has to wrestle with whether or not they want to mm-hmm. go back, go back to the farm, as it were, you know, after college or after exploring the world a little bit. But, um, but, you know, certainly in California, you're, you know, your and your dad's stories is, is archetypal, you know, right. sort of change, you know, a sort of radical, it's almost, you know, it's almost like the, you know, the 19th century pioneers, like pulling up roots and going, going west in a covered wagon. You know? well, <laughs> there's, there's so many so many of those stories. It know? was a,
0: country, a Ford Country yeah. Squire station wagon with, yeah. the dog, with uh, a dog in the back. That's what ours was. It's yeah, the,
1: the, the Mondavis were unusual. For, yes. The, you know, they'd been there for several generations. But, uh, but most of your, I think most of your peers, could, most of your contemporaries had started somewhere else. Somewhere and, else. And wine you know they came for the love of wine
0: and that was And it's fun it's fun to write those stories it really is it was great and then you so so you banged out you've got how many books you've got uh, Bacchus and me that was your first one adventures in the wine so oh I, yeah
1: yeah so eventually I um, yeah. somebody asked me if they could publish my columns in, in, okay. in, a, in, a, bo- in a book and it was a, a very small press and I, I, called, I called my my editor, Gary Fiskejohn, who my Williams road trip buddy who had since become my editor at Random House. And I, and I said, uh, is it okay if I do this? And I think he was relieved that I didn't want him to do it. <laughs> and, he, and he said, sure. Um, but the book ended up selling a lot of copies in hardcover. I mean, you know, like, like 40,000, 50,000 copies in this tiny, tiny press. Nice. So then, uh, Random House sort of sat, sat up and took notice, and <laughs> they bought the rights to the paperback, and they published uh, subsequent uh, collections of my of my wine writing. And uh, I don't know. I, th- I you know I, I like to think that I'm writing for I'm not ri- I'm not writing for the specialists. I, I'm writing for wine enthusiasts who are. You know a few, we, uh, there there are a few chapters behind me in the textbook basically and uh i like to help people appreciate wine more i'm i'm a lover rather than a fighter so i i very seldom write about wine in the in a highly critical fashion that is in a negative fashion if sure you know if i hate something then i just you just don't
0: write about don't it. write about yeah.
1: it <laughs> yeah <laughs> You know, I think the books have filled a niche, uh, filled a need over the years. Although, although I have to say that since, <laughs> since I started writing about wine, the, the landscape has changed so much, and now there is an amazing amount of very good wine writing. You know, in book form, on the internet, and blogs. Uh, it's you know, it's been a real renaissance. I think I could retire right now; and nobody would really notice. But back in you know, back in the late '90s, there. Were, you had these English critics sort of writing about, you know, the scent of hawthorn blossoms. And you had the wine spectator guys like writing this really technical stuff about barrels and, you know, and fermentation.
0: And then there was me, you know. <laughs> At this point, all these years you're writing wine columns, you're still writing novels, right? I mean, that's yes, your, absolutely. So yeah, you're doing, my, how's, my, how's that like bouncing back and forth between novels and wine columns?
1: No, you know, I feel like I do it in different moods. Huh. The, the wine writing just feels right some days, and, and the fiction feels right other days. And I, pr- I probably shouldn't admit this, but I can write a wine column when I'm hungover. But I can't write a good short story when I'm hungover. <laughs> Not that I ever get hangovers. But... No, no. I, me either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know, it's just, it's just different, different muscles. And also, I don't know, it's, it's always fun writing about wine for me. It's a little more serious. It's a little more daunting sitting down to start a new chapter of the latest novel. But I am, I'm in the middle of, I don't know, what must be my 10th novel, I think now. Wow. That's nice. Ninth or or 10th. I really should know this, but yeah, I think it's the 10th novel. And I mean, I certainly, I have a, I have a new book of wine columns kind of ready to go, but we haven't really organized that yet. It's been a, in case you haven't noticed, a very strange year. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, how are you doing? You know something. You know, you've had a good run, but your your luck ran out. What happened? Yeah, got, oh, go you ahead. got screwed. It's been a terrible what ha- year what happened in? Yeah, 20, what happened in 2019 after well, Christmas? Kind
1: of, yeah, right after Christmas, uh, my house in oh. uh, in Bridgehampton, New York, burned uh, almost to the ground, and uh, we were we we were actually in it at the time. Unfortunately, we got out, and our, all our pets got out safely. Um, Good. But um, you know this this really is our main residence, uh, and and was it was really heartbreaking. Um, oh. You know I lost a lot of stuff. Uh, fortunately, I uh, didn't lose my book collection. I collect oh. first editions, mainly of Hemingway and Fitzgerald, uh, all of which are pretty much irreplaceable. Is you know right. they're, they're signed to Dorothy Parker or uh, you know or Hemingway or whatever. So I was running back in the house, getting his books out. <laughs> Firemen were yelling at me to get them out of the house. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, no first were the pets, then then the books. Right. It was very very traumatizing, and then um, then of course this uh, general catastrophe started to unfold in uh, in March, and uh, it, our our dog died. It's just, <laughs> just it was it. Uh, it, I. It's a very bad year last yeah. year, and I'm very, very glad it's over. And uh, the house is being rebuilt. In the meantime, we're, we're spending some time on the west coast, which is Good. pretty nice. Good. But we, well, yeah, we we get a house in Malibu, and I'm, I'm spending, spending some time here. <laughs>
0: Well, bring some looking, of those. Bring l- looking, some of the...
1: looking out, looking out over the ocean right now. <laughs> Look
0: at you. Bring some of those A2 Bordeaux out, and I'll I'll drive down. See you. <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah, that's actually
1: the the, the the next. Yeah, the next step is, of course, I have to get a, a wine refrigerator installed here.
0: I hope the pandemic is. Now we're not we're hanging, you too Yeah, badly. we're hanging in there. You know, we're we're growing grapes. We're making wine um uh, are you, know, you going are you, you know.
1: going to open up so you to open the, the tasting room soon
0: um or? we're revamping it right now we're kind of we're lo- looking at the whole program and see what we're going to do and which is you know taking a pause so uh, we're yeah. working on that right now so we'll see what happens but uh already people are you know reaching out and saying hey we're going to do a trade show in the fall you want to come pour wine and we're kind of going okay I'm not sure yet but so I think it's just a uh, well you know we're we're all in the no. same boat and it's just kind of you know, yeah, baby, uh, it's baby steps. What are you going to yeah. do?
1: Well, I hope to be there before too long. All right. Uh, maybe even this summer.
0: So I okay. will. Let me know, will you? I will check in with you soon. All right, man. Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. It's been great talking My to you. My pleasure. Thank you. It's great right. talking to you, Doug. All right. Take All right. care. Be good. See you around. Bye-bye. What a story. Jay McInerney has brought a lot to the world of wine writing. If you get a chance, be sure to check out his wine books. He's got a novelist eye for writing about winemakers, wine regions, and more. I think you'll find a lot to enjoy. And if you enjoy what you hear on The Taste, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Doing this helps other people find the podcast. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.